Yeah. Yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. Huh. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help the saints understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved, everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleep but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Blackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said, he who puts his hands to the pile looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the kitchen five minutes and you're about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you die for me and I was still tripping, now how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep. Huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but you're studying trying to reach. Huh? But after him who was able to possess your father by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now the point is this prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate. Tim is also the author of 10 books, including the Master 
guys need to have out your pen and paper and get ready to take some notes so we can get off into this. Uh, Mr. Ward, are you with us? I am with you, Lamont, and it's a pleasure to be on your show today. Oh, man, I am so honored to have you, man. Every time I speak to a gentleman such as yourself, man, I get motivated and get inspired. And I sing that song that we just heard a moment ago, like, I know we're going to make it. Mm-hmm. So, Tim, you have a lot going on, man. So let's let's jump into this, man, and on this beautiful Sunday. Tell our listeners what all you got going on, man. I know we have a fantastic topic, man, resetting our future. So tell us how we're going to do that. Yeah, well, you know, as every single person in the world listening to this knows, we've just gone through a huge shock of this global pandemic. And for many people, it is far, far from over. Um it's you know destroyed many lives it's disrupted almost every economy in the in the planet and yet you know there's you know there's uh there's there's some wisdom behind the idea that you shouldn't waste a good crisis when you get something that's this big a disruption it's also an opportunity to reset yourself uh uh uh, and this was the the idea that started eating in me about a year ago when we were still within, I guess, the beginning of the pandemic. A friend of mine said, you know, it's as if Mother Nature has said, everybody, you go to your room and you think about what you've done. And, and um, that's, that's true, you know, because although, you know, our lives were very busy, we were also headed towards me through bigger disasters than the pandemic, right? climate change increasing inequality, um, uh, racial uh, injustice, uh, inequalities still persisting between men and, and women, and so many other problems that we're not really getting better. So this pandemic gives us the opportunity to think, well, okay, now we're, we're bringing our economies back, you know, in the United States uh, under Joe Biden, there's huge recovery programs. But how can we not just recover it, not just build back but how can we actually build forward how can we make a better future for ourselves and that was the idea behind this whole series of books i wanted to give a platform to have pragmatic visionaries express their ideas people who really know what they're talking about so that we can all have a big global conversation about what kind of a future can we build different you know, I have a question, uh, Tim. I guess we can, you can get into that too. How do you see uh, this this really, you know, playing out? Because what it seems to me is the same people that create the game also made the rules, and and I guess that's the problem that we are living with today. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and. You know, when I was starting to think about this uh, resetting our future, I, I found out the World Economic Forum is also doing something called the Great Reset. It's a very similar idea, but their forum is is giving space and voice to um, billionaires and, and corporate leaders. Uh, well, how are they going to do things differently? And their basic idea is capitalism got us into this mess, so capitalism can get us out. But I think that's a 
questionable hypothesis, at least can the same people who got us into it reasonably be expected to get us out? And I <laughs> know, you know, but, you know, so the real question for all the rest of us is, is do we want to trust the billionaires to do what they think is best? And, you know, let, let me, I think some, some people who have a lot of money, they're really trying to do good. That's fine. But the main point is this should be for all of us to decide. It should be a conversation we're all a part of. And specifically, um, the people who are at the top don't necessarily really know what's going on. And I've had a really great career as a communication specialist. I've worked with people in development and environmental issues. And I know a lot of the people who like spent 20, 30 years working on these particular issues. And some of them have really great ideas, really, you know, mind-blowing ideas. But they're in the middle. And they're not necessarily creating as much influence as they need to have their ideas really be heard. Some of their ideas are not necessarily what those who are in charge want. So that's the, those are the people I want to give a mouthpiece to. I want to give them a platform to, you know, write a book, to get it out there, and then stand up, you know, plant a flag on a hill and say, hey, what about this? And get the conversation going and get some momentum behind it. And when I put this opportunity out there, I was really amazed, Lamont, at how many really great, smart people said, yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. And so I've got 10 books now published in the series. There are five more at least that are still on the way. And I'm uh, so excited at this, um, this opportunity for, every, for, for these authors to have their views out and for shows like yours where we can discuss these ideas. And people can see, well, is this how we, we would like our future to go? Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that because that's really the only way that the message is going to be heard because it seemed like um, standing there with a foot on your neck, like you said, if it doesn't work to their advantage, um, things are not going to change. And I think that's the whole problem. And we're seeing that every day on the news with the government, the way that it's constantly stalling for simple that's so basic to us. And the people are deciding how we should live our lives, don't even know how much the gas costs at the pumps. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, one of the one of the authors who uh, who wrote uh, the book addressing extreme inequality, um, he talks about it in terms of uh, a, a pie. He's going to come on your show later. But you know, there's the old thing about you know you can eat, it's you know you can grow the pie so everybody has a little bit more pie. But if the people who are at the top are always making sure they get the biggest slices then no matter how much you grow the pie, you may not necessarily be creating a better and fairer world. So to me, the real question is not just can we grow the pie, but also who holds the knife that does the slicing? How do we change the rules? It's the thing. Yeah. Because they they made the rules, and they're not trying to change the rules. It's going to benefit us. So the question becomes how do we change it? Right. But, you know, to, to be honest, I just between you and me, Lamont, I think those who we say are in charge, and let's face it, that's a pretty big and vague group, they don't actually necessarily know the answers. And especially at this time when we were building after the pandemic, if people are discussing certain ideas and saying, yeah, this sounds like a good idea, some of those are going to get picked up if they're discussed by the right people in the right places. 
at the right time. So it, to me, it's to me communication is a powerful force for transformation. And all these books are as an opportunity for those with great ideas to to shout it out and see who shouts back. Right. See what see what gets the conversation going because those in charge they don't have the answers. They kind of know they don't have the answers. So maybe they'll listen. Well, they know they don't want to share the wealth. They know that part. They know well, that part. Yeah. I mean, I think it's um, it's, and I don't want to. I don't want to pigeonhole anybody from any any group. And certainly those in government, especially when you get a change in government, like we've had in the U.S., they're trying to figure things out. Some of them have really important and interesting ideas. I'm I'm happy, for example, that, that Joe Biden's climate team seems to be really interested in making some big shifts. How much will they do? You know, you can't have one, one person succeed in Washington, right? It's <laughs> it's gotta go through right. many different levels of government. So it's never about just one just one person and their ideas. All these ideas move and take shape and they take shape through you know, let's face it, we're lucky. More feedback in our country back and forth between citizens and in the media and, the, uh, and, 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 and in, in local communities than in many others. So we should really make the most of this opportunity at this moment in time when policymakers are trying to make some big decisions. True, true. Tim, you know, we got you have a series uh, of books Oh man, a series of books, boy, with a lot of great stuff, a lot of great uh, subjects to cover. So, talk a little bit about how you selected the authors uh, for your series. Well, I'm really lucky because in my 25 years doing communications training and environment development issues, I met a lot of great people, and many of them became my friends. Some of them, uh, even through the pandemic, I was meeting with socially on Zoom. You know, small small groups or, or individuals, and they all they all know me also as a as a publisher. So I put this invitation out to them and invited them to also share with those in their in their networks. And oh, and I was really so happy how many of them responded. Oh, I can write a book. Yes, please. Uh, and not only saying it, but then actually doing it. And and I have to say, most of these folks have been too busy for much of their lives to sit down and, and, and write a book. And they carved out the time. And uh, I, it's mo- most of them were first-time authors. I, I helped them to structure it, helped them figure out sometimes what their big ideas were. But they, And I set them a pretty fierce timeline. I said, you know, ideally I'd like you to write your book in two months. <laughs> These are meant to be short books. They're only around 100 pages or so each. They're just like big ideas. Some of them did it in two months. Some of them did it in a year. But right now 10 of them have got it done and in print which is pretty impressive. And I told them that if they wrote them fast, I would fast track the publishing. So these books are like written and out in a blistering speed. Normally, Lamont, the publishing industry, it takes about 18 months just to publish a finished book. So you're really looking more like two, two and a half years. So we did this in like between two and four months for most of these books, which is great. And, let me just give your 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 uh, your listeners a flavor. They they include everything from people who've had 
long careers in international development. Sometimes they're real iconoclasts, really pushing against others to try and get things they believed in done. Uh, They've also seen a lot of the world. They know a lot about how the world actually works. Others are uh, technical experts working on things like like climate change. Some are communications experts who've worked in various fields, but they, they, they know the importance of the conversation and the communication to get things changed. Some are journalists. Some are, uh, some are, some are teachers. Uh, but all of them have real deep expertise in the topic they chose to write on. Yeah, I just can't wait to jump into some of this stuff, how COVID-19 changed our lives for good. Yeah. Might have. Might have. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> that's that's, the, that's the, the question from our first, uh, right. the first uh, guy you're going to interview after me, right? Right. And a long yeah. haul COVID, a survivor's guide. Um Yeah, yeah, and uh, dose of truth. So that's going to be a great, uh, great subject as well. Absolutely, so many, so many people. Yeah, this COVID situation. um, I don't know. I I agree with a comment you made earlier. You know, people can look at things a couple different ways, but I think this COVID thing made a lot of people. Uh, look within, look at themselves, start and look at that man and, and, and woman in the mirror, you know, and, and figure out really what's going on. But it really had them self-check themselves a lot of times. And uh, instead of looking at the glass half full like a lot of people do, I mean half empty, I'm sorry, they start mm-hmm. just start looking at it as half full and figure out how they could make the best of the situation. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, that that in itself is a really important shift. I think that it means something that people wore masks, not just to protect themselves, but to protect other people. And that everybody sort of got it that the best thing I can do for myself and my family is to not spread the disease, not become a vector for it. So I think for many people there was this opportunity to really start thinking socially for the good of those around them. And, you know, when I know when I would go to the grocery store, I would thank the person at the checkout counter and the person packing my bags. I thanked them for showing up and doing their job. It never really occurred to me to do that before. But now I realize these people are out there and they're taking a risk doing their job. And I really did find I was appreciating them. So I find it, I'm sure, that the same is true in different ways for all of your listeners, that the experience of the pandemic has changed how you see others, has changed how you see your community and your your place in it. And even in some extent, even if it was only staying safe or only providing some help or shelter for some uh, some friends or family, you know, see us all as participants in the story of humanity, not not victims or people who are just trying to get by or take what we can. It's definitely made everyone slow down and start taking notice of things yeah. that they would normally take for granted. That's for certain. Yeah. So then you have uh, author Tom Bowman, Empowering Climate Action. I see what he has, what, two books? Yes. Uh, well, I'll have to explain it. Tom's book is called What is Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. Simple is not the same as easy. 
but he means we tend to get sort of lost in the complexity of climate change. It just seems too overwhelming. And so we often end up not doing anything. But this, in this optimistic book about the climate crisis, he helps carve a clear path so that everybody can feel that they are engaged in doing something and that the task is not impossible. It's manageable. It's, it's doable. I think it's a genius genius book and it's frankly the best-selling book of the whole series what if solving the climate crisis is simple the second book that he um, he has his name on together with deb morrison the two of them didn't actually write this book the heart of this book but they were very much involved in a process of 150 different people writing the book which is about empowering climate action in the u.s so this is a fantastic process that actually took place under the administration, the previous administration. It took place last uh, last summer, where all these different groups and education centers, universities, NGOs, think tanks, and individuals, businesses, all pooled their brain power and thought about what can we in the U.S. do, all of us, each of us, to work on solving the climate crisis. So it's this big collective collaborative effort. It's something now known as ACE. Uh, that's Action for Climate Empowerment. And um, it's, this is just the first step. But that book that he wrote about it has the official document that all those people put together and also the plan ahead for turning it into actually part of a national strategy for all of the U.S. in getting active and engaged in fighting the climate crisis. Mind-blowing. Wow. Tim, with all these powerful people that, that you're working with and you have around in, in, in your camp, boy, I know that just helps helps your brain keep expanding more and more and more. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, Tim, I know you just didn't mm-hmm. wake up one day and start doing all these fantastic things and working with all these great people. And I, I usually like to go back to the beginning. Uh, Tim, who, what, how did you get started in all this? I, I didn't ask you that question in the beginning, but you know, I know our listeners are curious because they say this guy is a publisher. He, he's written ten books. He's been all over the world. But we always have a story. We always have a journey. It's always something that put us on that street, if you know what I mean. What got you started, man? What made you decide that you wanted to be a writer? You even wanted to do some of the things that you're doing. Well, Lamont, I guess um, I guess I was born curious is the <laughs> easy way to put it. And <laughs> that's a good way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I was in high school, I was like really good at math and sciences. But by the time I graduated, I moved on to being really curious about sort of the big picture questions that are more in the realm of of religion, spirituality, and philosophy. So I ended up studying philosophy in university. And when I graduated, I realized I've now grown up in, in, in North America. And I got some understanding about North America, but I don't know how most of the world thinks or makes sense of the world. And I was curious, what's it like in India? What's it like in China? What's it, you know, I knew a middle-class middle class life. What was it like to be poor in Bangladesh? I had no clue whatsoever. And um, so I, I worked for a couple of years. I saved up some money, and then I bought a one-way ticket to India, and I spent two years 
traveling through Asia, just trying to meet people. Um, I stayed at monasteries and some ashrams along the way and spent a, a lot of time in, in villages and places that were not tourist destinations that were really out of the way. Um, and uh, it was hard in many ways, but it was a real education. While I was doing that, I was realizing how much all these experiences were changing me. I also made it a point to write letters home. I wrote long letters to my parents, to my brother, to my sister, to my friends, and um, that helped me stay connected. These were in the days before the Internet. <laughs> and, um, and when I came back, I discovered that my parents, God bless them, had collected all of my letters. And then my sister, who deserves a real medal, had deciphered them all and printed them, like typed them all out and put them all in one big binder. And I ended up using a lot of the material that was collected in those binders for my first three books which were about my adventures traveling in Asia. And so in my 30s, I had a pretty uh, good early career as an author with those three books published, and then uh, I started working on a fourth. But I found it was really hard to get published. I'm fortunate, really fortunate. Back then in the 90s, was a lot easier. So I got those books published. But the fourth book finally got published, and then the fifth book got published. Uh, but it was getting harder instead of easier because so, so much was changing in the publishing industry. It was hard for middle-ranked authors to get to find anybody. Then I was given an opportunity by the person who published my fourth book to actually start my own imprint in his company, John Hunt Publishing. And I said, gosh, I'd love to start my own imprint. And he said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, books on transformation. Lamont, I didn't even think about it. I'd never even thought about being a publisher before conversation in my life. But when he asked me, I said right away, books on transformation, that's what drives me. That's what makes me curious. And he said, okay, done. And so for the last 10 years, I've had this lovely imprint and this great opportunity to publish the kind of people who have trouble being published, but who have great ideas and deserve to have their voices heard. So that was my, my path into publishing. And, um, during the pandemic, I really went into overdrive. There were a lot of things I couldn't do, but publishing, you can do that pretty easily remotely. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's my story. Well, when you speak of transformation, and I know you're, you're referencing uh, uh, life, but can you speak on that a little bit more for our listeners to totally understand what you mean by transformation? Yeah, sure, glad glad to um, you know everybody knows that you know we change we change as we grow up we change as we get old we change jobs we fall in love we fall out of love we raise kids we're a parent they grow up we're no longer a parent there are also moments in our lives where we choose to change and well, when things happen and in response to it, we have to change, we can change one way or another. A relationship could end. We could feel free or we could feel bitter. We could feel I learned something. I can become a better person out of this. Or we can feel that's it. I'm done trying to connect with people. So a lot of that change is stuff that we drive ourselves. And I'm fascinated by what it is that makes people change and, even, and also fascinated by what it is that makes groups, communities, societies change what is it that makes you know big example in the u.s 
what is it that makes something like slavery okay for a long, long time, then suddenly in the 18th century there's enough momentum that it's no longer tolerable. But, you know, there are groups that rise up against it. Um, you know, the government finally takes action, and there's, there's change, big change. So how does that happen? Uh, what uh, – and, and I, I just – there's nothing to me that is more interesting than that. And when people write about it or when they've experienced it uh, or when they have a plan for it, I just want to give that a lot of space because there's a lot I don't really understand, but I know that we're all in the middle of it. <laughs> so um, That's true. If there's one thing, that's a thing to be alive is to be in transformation. Right? They, they say you're either, you're either um, dying or you're changing. Uh, evolve or die. And boy, if ever there was a time when for all of humanity, that's true. Evolve or die. We know if we don't change and consciously change to have a lighter footprint, to stop you know, damaging each other, then our civilizations will, will be in deep trouble. I think that's the hardest thing it is for people to do is change because it seems to me that you'd have to make a conscious effort every day uh, in order to facilitate the change. You first have to identify the fact that you need to change. And um, I think a lot of people have an issue with that part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 you... You know the the start for change, I think, is an inward is an inward thing. It's it's not an easy thing, but once we make it, communication becomes absolutely essential. Let's say let's say I decide I'm uh, I'm I'm going to go on a diet and stop eating junk food. That really only starts to happen not when I order something different at a restaurant, but when I start to tell people and I tell my wife and tell my friends, hey, I'm going on a diet. I'm no longer going to eat junk food. The minute I say it. I start to make it real because then, you know, if I, if I go to a McDonald's, my friend sees me there. It's like, Hey, I thought you said you were going on a diet. <laughs> so my, my words set my path to the future and my words can set my path to a different future. You think about it. That's amazing. Hey, look, especially if you're going to be honest with yourself, <laughs> you know, quit yeah, lying to yourself. Exactly. Look, I'm going I'm to get on this diet and I'm going to stick on this diet, and tomorrow you're eating a fat burger with extra cheese. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But if you've got people around you, you know, and you're like, ah, but I said to everybody that I wouldn't do that. Now it's not just about what you want to eat. Now it's also about who you are as a person, you know. Yeah, that's true. I know so many people, Tim, that's bought some uh, diet stuff to go on a diet. Boy, they got two rooms full of diet stuff that they've bought to help go on a diet and use it for a day and don't use it no more. Yeah. Yeah. Willpower, willpower, willpower. Listen, I want to just say for the listeners out there, we're glad to hear you join the conversation. If you have any conversation or any questions for Mr. Ward, uh, please, please, please dial 646-929-2870. Press number one on your phone. We'll be glad to let you join the conversation. Good stuff. So, so Tim, we got a lot of other questions here for you, man. I mean, I mean I'm sorry. I'm, I'm reading and thinking my mind runs faster than my mouth sometimes. <laughs> you, have, you have all these great uh, authors that's in your series, man, and, and 
don't know, power switch. How can we reverse extreme inequality? And, uh, I mean, that's going to be a great thing to talk about because I'll be trying to figure that out every day. You know, I'm one of these guys that came from Texas, a little small town that used to have to sit in the balcony and watch the movie mm. because I wasn't I wasn't allowed to sit downstairs. Damn. First floor. Yeah. And, um, one thing I I, I loved about the, the business entertainment industry is because, you know, that music is an international language and it does transcend a whole lot of stuff. And you don't see so much... Uh, uh, racism and type stuff in the music industry as you would in other uh, businesses. Mhm. And, and yeah. you know that that's that's going to be a great show and I'm really looking forward to talking to the gentleman about that kind of stuff because a lot of that stuff people try to play like it don't exist and it's got better and I can't really say it's got better. I think it uh went up to the next level on the elevator. But it's still there. You know, yeah, no kidding, no kidding. And, uh, and I don't, I don't understand the reason of it because there's good and bad. Everybody, I've been living long enough to realize that, and it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Hispanic, or whatever. There's good and bad. Everybody on this planet. Yeah, that is that is so true. And everybody on the planet has has a has a right to a voice. Um, uh, you, one of the things that I love about this um, this book is the guy who wrote it, Paul O'Brien. Um, he was a, a very senior person in Oxfam International when he uh, when he wrote the book, and he'd spent his life working on human rights issues. He worked in uh, Afghanistan. He worked in Kenya, in in Africa. You know, he's lived his life in the trenches, fighting for. Uh, people's people's basic human human rights, and one of the things that he is acknowledging in his in his book is, you, you know, you have people who who've done a lot of this kind of work, but now there's a new generation. How does even within the human rights movement, how do the people who have power, how do they then turn that power over to the rising generations to to the um, the new activists, the people who are young and just starting out, and they have ideas that might not be the same as the older older group's ideas. So he's writing a, both a blueprint, what do, what do people with a lot of experience have to pass on, but also how can we do a transition? Wow, those that's going to be that's going to be a burn as well because you ah. you just sh- shook my brain pan again because I'm looking at the fight that's going on now. Uh, in terms of education, where, you know, the powers that be don't want certain subjects uh, taught in school when it comes to, you know, different cultures and people's history. I mean, how how, yeah. how does that work? You know, how, how does that work? You know, what, they're going to play like it never existed or uh, like Puff, it just blew away or something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all these are fights that have to be have to be fought, and the question is who who gets to have a piece of that fight, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation to hear about his book too. Cause I'm sure I'm gonna hear about his stuff. I'm sure he got some uh, great ideas because I'm I'm constantly blown away by the things um, 
that that people don't even want to be taught in schools anymore. Because I remember standing up, saluting the flag, and doing all that stuff. You know, when I was coming up, and you know, it, it was just different. I always fight about them taking the music programs out of school. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I always, I always, I always fight about that stuff too, man. Because they just changing things. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. But I think if they had kept the education like it was, and I know they like they think it's better. And then you were talking about the young generation. How are the older people gonna pass certain things on to the younger generation? And that's gonna be interesting too. Because it seems like if they're gonna do it at home, where else they gonna get it from? Because it looks like they're not gonna be able to get it in schools if those people get their way. Yeah, yeah, and that would be that'll be that'll be sad. But that's yeah. not that's not done. That's not done. None of it's done. It's all in process. So Tim, what else is in store for you? Because I know, I mean, you you got other authors coming on board. I mean, what do you see yourself doing in the next five years or so? Ah, well, you know, um, a big part of that is going to depend on how this series does. Uh, I've actually got a couple other series that are in the works right now, but I'm I'm looking at at, at having my own revolution in, in publishing. Uh, you know, one of the things I really don't like is I don't like these big, thick, padded books, 400 pages, 600 pages, when the ideas are like 50, 60 pages. So um, I, I like the books that th- in this series that are really stripped down and lean. They're the ideas, the examples, and the practical plan to make them happen. And then being published fast. Publishing's been stuck in the 18th century for way too long. There's no reason somebody can't have a book written and then available, sitting on a bookshelf available on Amazon in just a couple of months, if you've got good editing, if you've got people who really know their stuff. And um, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting in the world of publishing, getting those, getting good ideas out fast to meet people's needs. I also, I've got to say, maybe this dates me as a, as a as an old guy, eh? but uh, I love books. <laughs> I think there's there's something about somebody who can sit down and can really construct with words a plan, a vision. Uh, uh, it's like it's like architecture of the mind, right? They can build something that can help change people's thinking, that can inspire them, that can motivate them, that can help them find their own path into the future. So that's that's high up on my my list for. Uh, for the next five years. Are 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 you or any of your authors going to do any audio books? I think so. In, in fact, Lamont, I have to say my, my son, who's uh, who's an actor, has uh, recently started getting into audiobooks. He's just right right now at the very beginning of it. But I'm I'm realizing that's a huge market, and I myself have listened to several audiobooks recently. And one of the things that I love about an audiobook is when you have somebody speak a book to you, I think you hear it in more parts of you than if you're just reading the words. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but it's kind of like, maybe it's kind of like music. It touches you differently. Well, you know, it makes the, perfect the, sense. The, the spoken it makes words. Perfect, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me because, what, in 2006 or seven, somewhere back there when I per, uh, published my first book, um, I did an audio book, uh, you know, for the author, and uh, you know he recorded himself, and 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 like you said, it t- 
touch people a whole lot, a lot different ways when they hear the author that can actually speak their book to them. You know, it's more of a personal thing. And then you have a lot of people that has a very busy schedule here and there, and then they just pop it in their CD player and listen to it on the way to work or at lunch. Yeah, so yeah, we, I like that right. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were able to touch for, those for as well. Run, driving. Yeah, yeah, great. Like a, just like a long long conversation. Oh, I absolutely. Guess the other thing, yeah. The other thing which for me is really important is um, the work that, that I've done in this series with books on climate change. It really made me realize that's, that is something on, on us. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a baby boomer generation, right? I was uh, born in 1958. So I, I really think the climate change is, is on us, is on our generation to not just – you know, pass the torch on, but also figure out what can each of us do to make a big difference. I've been inspired by uh, the authors in the book, by 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 Tom Tom Bowman, by Stephanie Miller, who's written about zero waste living, uh, by Alan Miller, who wrote a book on super climate pollutants and how they can make a big difference. You know, these are people who've really turned their life to something that if we get it together to make a huge difference in saving the planet. I, I'm inspired by that. I, I want to make sure that my life has an element of that too, that I'm really working on this this as my problem, not the world's problem, but my problem, that I have a piece of solving, even if it's a very small one. And it's just mind-boggling uh, how serious uh, climate change is, and a lot of people just don't realize from day to day. Uh, I'm also a, a baby boomer. So I remember when you knew what time of year it was just by the season change. You didn't have to have mm-hmm. a calendar or look at the months. You didn't know. You would just know by the weather. You know, you you would just you just know. And this thing we gonna have going on now, you know, the water shortages and the droughts in certain parts mm-hmm. of the country. We didn't have to worry about that when we were coming up. That was never a thought. It was just, yeah. Yeah, we just never had that consider- that consideration at all when we we're coming up. You know, I think here, you know, on the West Coast, you know, there was a a smog thing with the automobiles. You know, it, it was that, mm-hmm. but we never had to worry about, you know, like I said, you know, the water and you know this extreme heat and uh, right. you know the lakes and stuff drying up. You know, all of that uh, farmers right. losing their produce because they don't have water. You know, and then they're yeah. they're rushing, they're rushing to produce fruit and, and and food to get it in the stores, and half the time the stuff doesn't taste good. It looks pretty after they didn't sprayed it, but it, mm-hmm. it doesn't. You know, it's just a vicious circle. It just goes around and it affects everybody in more ways than they realize. Yes, yes, so true. Gosh, I, and you know, on the on the west coast. Uh, these days, who, who knew that fire was going to be such a big part of everybody's life, right? I, I heard some, somewhere I heard on the news as if it was a, a normal thing talking about the fire season. It used to be a fire season in California, did there? No. <laughs> well, well we know, had water. Now I mean, we thing. had water. Yeah. So, you know, we had yeah. water. You know, they, they, they scared to death now because everything is dry. You know, everything is yeah. dry. It's a big 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 fire hazard you know and yeah. i think i read somewhere today that uh they're talking about uh limiting the time the the amount of time that you could take a shower you know to cut back on the water or something 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you'll be happy to know that one of the books in the Reset Future series is on water. Uh, hopefully, uh, by the fall, you'll be able to interview those um, those authors. It's called Unquenchable Thirst, and it's about water and law and how the laws we make, and basically the agreements that we make with each other, has a big effect on how much water there ultimately is to drink and to, uh, to, to use and to, to keep for the environment. Who owns water, Tim? Who owns water? Yeah, who owns There's water? There's a big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who owns it? I just wanted to know, you know, is it the person that uh, 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 created a plastic bottle to put it in, or is it the person that said that they clean it and made it you know, consumable for the consumers? I mean, just, just who owns it? Because I remember when we were kids, yeah. man, we used, to drink, we used to drink water out of the faucet, and it was actually good. It didn't harm, didn't harm you. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So definitely, I am definitely looking forward to uh, jumping into some of those topics because those uh, affect yeah. us daily. And, and, um, and we and, need to figure this thing called life out, that's for sure. We do. We sure do. And, hey, let me jump back to the uh, the, the top of the list. This is the the guy who's going to be the guest on your show next week. Um, he uh, wrote Bart, a great book. Professor Bart? Bart, yeah. He wrote a great yeah. book called Learning from Tomorrow, which is all about foresight. And foresight is a word we've all heard, we all know. It kind of means thinking about the future. But strategic foresight, which is Bart's area of expertise, is actually a brand-new discipline that's being developed, you know, not you know, just in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, it's a way of thinking about our future that allows people to get, see multiple scenarios and possibilities and how those then interact and basically can keep you from making the kinds of mistakes we made because we did not see this pandemic coming, but we easily could have seen this pandemic coming. And uh, I, this, to me, this blows my mind away because I think it's a whole new way that humankind is learning to think about our future. And if there's one thing we know we need, we got to do a better job at thinking about our future. We've got to get away from the kind of short termism that makes us the victims of political cycles or market cycles that are only months. Um, And, um, you know, so this is it. This, this, this next guest you've got talking about foresight this is what we need to learn to do better if we're going to have societies that don't crash and burn because they couldn't see it coming when it was obvious if you used foresight. See, I see another problem that, that I see with that, too, is everybody seems to be stuck on survival mode. And if you're stuck on survival mode, it's kind of hard to think about the future, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, partly because your thinking becomes very short term, yes, uh, and also partly because That's it's then just usually about you or maybe your family if you're lucky. But when you're under stress, the part of your brain that's operating is really, you know, that's it. It is. It can fight. It can flee. And it can freeze. But it can't think well <laughs> about 
about options. And I think this is, this is, I think we have to watch out for our politicians. When politicians just try to scare you, especially if they scare you by saying that's the enemy over there, they often keep you from thinking well about your actual choices and about your actual possibilities for the future. Right. And I think that's what's going to make the next guest, uh, his his show, fantastic, too, because that's what I want to know, too. How do we get these people off uh, survival mode long enough for them to really think about the future? Because most people look like trying to figure out how they're going to make it today or tomorrow. Yeah. Because of all the madness yeah. that's going on out there in society. So, you know, they really don't have... Uh, enough peace of mind, or should I say downtime, to really think about a concise plan and how to enact it. Yeah. And and let's face it, most people in the world, most people are pretty much concerned about making it through the day. Yeah. You know, we're, that's, that's true in the United States, but, you know, if you go to other parts of the world, Africa, uh, the subcontinent in, in Asia, many people... They, it does take almost all their energy just to make a good living for them and their families. If they're lucky enough, you can do that. So, you know, for them, the possibility of giving them enough space that they can think beyond the present moment is, is aspirational. To me, the fact that even people who are living in pretty wealthy societies or might even have positions of power, they're still thinking in survival mode. They're still thinking, how can I get what I want? How can I screw the other guy, right? How can I beat my, my opponents? They're the people that need to be thinking big picture, thinking long-term, thinking beyond them and their immediate uh, friends, but really for the good of the larger, the larger groups. Whew, that's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. So being a world traveler, Tim, what are some of the places that you enjoyed and where would you go back to, you know? Would you go back to Cambodia, or Nepal, or Zimbabwe? Where would you go? Would you go back to any of those places? You know, I, I have to say the the one place on earth that my heart often goes back to is Tibet. The, uh, the That beautiful mountainous region just north of the Himalayas, it's a high plateau, the people there built this amazing culture, um, which is often called Tibetan Buddhism, but it's, you know, that's just to look at its spiritual side. It's a whole whole cultural whole. Uh, I, uh, I've been to Tibet three times, and uh, I, I right now I serve on the board of directors for a Tibetan NGO called Machik, at uh, M-A-C-H-I-K dot org. And they do work within Tibet and for the Tibetan communities worldwide. Um, the, the nation was uh, invaded by the Chinese in the 19, uh, late 40s and the 1950s and um, has been under Chinese rule since then. So it's one of the most difficult places politically on the planet. And the people there have this resilience despite the the hardship that they are under. And it's at times really, really brutal. There's no way around it. And uh, yet they find ways to keep their bodies and souls together and their lives and their spirituality moving forward. Um, I see genuine, not only resilience there, but an ability to reach out and, and care for one another. 
in the middle of things that are, are tough. So that's that's where I go, both for incredible beauty of the Himalayas and also for inspiration of the human, the human heart. Right. Yeah, it sounds like a beautiful place, and I guess they have a firm spiritual belief in their culture that that helps them persevere and endure the things, the other things that they're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's, I mean, to me, that's a lesson for the for for the for the rest of us who feel that you know our our life is is difficult if our maca latte is cold or has two percent milk instead of soya milk added to it, we get. <clears throat> all upset or you know we don't get the airplane seat that we wanted we tell we going off into another subject now because I always yeah. I always think that people in this country are too soft you know because they, they yeah. value their trinkets and their pretty cars and their jewelry and their pretty houses and stuff and that that's what they live daily for but then there's people in this other part of the world are strapping bombs to their kids yeah, 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 you know, so yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. And you know that's not their first choice, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm like, wow, you know, it's just we just don't know. A lot of people just take so much for granted yeah. in this country, and it, it could be so much uh, better, but it definitely could be a lot worse. But it definitely yeah, could be a lot true. better than what it is. Yeah. People just need to, yeah. Take time out and smell the roses, as the old folks used mm-hmm. to say. Well, Lamont, if we if we can, I'd love to touch on some of the other authors who are going to be your um, your guests on the show that we haven't really Certainly. mentioned Go yet. Go for it. Uh, Go for it. I'd I'd love to to say a few words about um, the book that to me has the cleverest title. It's a little strange. Chicken can't lay a duck egg. Is the title? <laughs> the chicken oh, wow. can't lay a duck egg. And with that, that is actually a saying of Malcolm X's. And what it means is that a system that's designed to do one thing can't be expected to do the opposite thing. And the authors take this clever saying and they, they apply it to solving climate change. And what they say is capitalism was built to extract wealth from the environment and from people. So it can't be expected that capitalism is going to suddenly turn itself into something that's going to create a clean environment and a more uh, a, a better life for for everybody. And now they are laying out a very strong marker there, and um, you know I think that there's there's a lot of people who might provide them some pushback from that, even from within within the series. But one of the things that I really love about this book is they paint a brilliant historical picture of how it is that the particular brand of capitalism that we just call capitalism today, it's actually neoliberal capitalism, how that actually came to be implanted in Western democracies like the United States and Europe. It was actually a small group of economists who set about to deliberately influence governments in a very particular way. One of the points that the authors, Graham and, um, and Bernice, make is if that was done, then we can do the opposite thing. We can take better economic ideas and also influence them and use, get those into government and influence them in a much more productive way for all citizens and for our, our global environment. So I find it an inspiring book, and I know you'll love to interview the two of them. They're both um, 
uh, former journalists for The Economist magazine. One of them was, uh, Graham was once the secretary general of the Club for Rome, a huge international high-level environmental organization. And the other, uh, Bernice, she ran the Jane Goodall Institute out of Singapore. They both have serious environmental chops to bring to their analysis of how we got to where we are and what needs to be done. Looking forward to talking to them because I still say that people that created the game also made the rules. Now, how are we going to get rid of those people? Yeah, yeah. So I think you may find find a lot. You may find a lot. You and your listeners will find a lot of good stuff in their analysis of uh, of that game and how the rules were made and by whom the rules were made and how we can perhaps change them. Then sort of on the, um, on the other end, uh, there's a book called Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now. Uh, Alan Miller is one of three authors, and these guys, the three of them, have all spent a lot of their career working on the uh, ozone depletion treaties, known as the Montreal Protocol, um, that is actually the world's most successful global international environmental treaty ever. And they find that there's a lot of stuff in that treaty that they believe we can use to make a big difference in immediately cutting some of the warming effects from climate change by focusing on a small group of chemicals. Now, this might sound pretty remote from people's lives, right? It's not quite the same as inequality, which you may see every time you, you, know, you go out to your, to your job. But what they're onto can actually make a big difference in the ability of nations to more quickly prevent heat buildup from, from climate change. And uh, they've got a plan that's not only well marked out, but that does include what each of us individually can do. Simple things like switching air conditioners can play a part. Like, uh, 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 so it's, uh, it's amazing something that's both global also can matter with your home appliances. So fabulous, fabulous book. Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now is the title. Definitely looking forward to that one as well because I'm thinking about looking at the the icebergs and all that good stuff melting. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We uh, using not that but just a little bit of foresight. We can see that change is going to be coming at us hard and fast, and everything we can do to bend that curve and keep the heat from from getting worse is going to make a big difference. And and that leads me to the. Uh, this one other book that you'll be, um, I guess, I'll have the author in in September, uh, Dr. Claire Nelson, who's a Jamaican genius. She's both an engineer. She's also worked in development on inequality issues all around the, the world. And she's at the same time this myth-making storyteller who has just this mind-blowing ability to weave ancient myths and future scenarios uh, into one book, which is still all about how do we achieve global sustainability. I, I don't think I could even do justice to what this book is about, but it's like a, a, a magical trip combining deep spiritual myths, development economics. <laughs> what can I say? It's, wow. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> Sounds sound like it. <laughs> Sounds like it. But she figured it out. So, yeah, I'm yes. definitely going to be looking forward yes. to that one as well. Yeah, I think you might want to have your show run a little long for Claire because she can tell a story. 
that's okay. We and, can make it happen. Super. And the last, the last book, and I so appreciate that we're doing this all within the the, the time of our of your uh, your show here, Lamont. The last one we haven't talked about yet is called Zero Waste Living the Eighty Twenty Way by Stephanie Miller. And Stephanie's actually a good friend of mine. She, I knew her when she was working at the um, the World Bank in charge of their private sector's um, climate business group. So she was in charge of all the programs that a big part of the World Bank was running to get private companies to do things like clean energy, solar power, um, reducing their, uh, their, their carbon emissions. And when she left that organization, she really felt the important focus was the individual and that so often we're making daily decisions in our lives that are creating unnecessary waste, we're creating trash, we're creating extra emissions, but that if we, that we're just too busy to figure out, well, what do we really need to do? Even when we look at our recycling bin, does this go in the trash or does it go in the blue box? We don't know half the time. We make the wrong choice. We just make things worse. So she's figured it all out and put it in a nice, beautiful, simple book called Zero Waste Living the 80-20 Way. And her mission now is to go and just help households and communities figure out how to get this bit right because each of us contributes waste to the planet. We can all do our bit. Exactly. We sure do. We can all do better, that's for sure. Well, Tim, I want to thank you so much, so much, man. It's always an honor to speak with you for coming through and, and, and spending time with us and tell us about your book and about your series. And, of course, you know you're always welcome to come back anytime, and I hope you'll join us with, uh, when the other authors come through. I hope you chime in as well. And, uh, join us Thank you, those. Lamont. I will. I'm going to be listening every every week. I I, I so, have so much respect for these people. I am so grateful to 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 you, to Olivia, to Canna Player Play, and World Movement Radio for giving them a you know a, a platform on which to to stand and and share their their thoughts and engage with your audience when they when they uh, they call in. I am looking forward to a really great summer with you and all the guests you've got lined up. Yes, and it's definitely, definitely our pleasure because you got like some great, great authors. And uh, the bottom line to this whole show, people used to ask me all the time, can a player play? Um, what kind of name is that for a show? And I say, well, if you think about it, who is actually facilitating change in this world? You know, and that's the kind of people that I reached out to for this show, people that can actually inspire, motivate, touch, change people's lives, you know, and, and cause them to um, start wake, or stop walking around with their, their eyes wide shut, you know. They think they're open, but they're really closed. And for things that like you're doing, man, like I said, it, it's truly an honor to have you, to know you, and have some of these people come on the show that really can help and change some things, man. I, I really feel good about that. Thank you so much, Lamont. Me too. And boy, every single one of these authors, they are players. And they are going to play hard. And they'll look forward to playing with you on your show. Absolutely. And that's what we need. People that can affect people's lives in a positive manner. Definitely. And mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Tim. And for those that just joined the show late, the show will be available in its entirety. In the next minute or so, and it's available worldwide, so there's no reason that you can't hear the show if you miss any parts of it. 
And like I tell you all the time, if you have any issues, ask your mama, ask your daddy, ask the neighbor across the street, ask the man on the corner at the gas station. Somebody could tell you how you could hear this show. And thank you so, so very much. And we will see you next week, same time, 2.30 PST. Thank you much. And be safe, everybody. Alone in love, go soft, TikTok. I think the cost to be the boss. So I thought, yet my life was tossed to and fro. Up on the sea of pain, again, I strained. Could not refrain the fear remained. I couldn't make it, couldn't take it, didn't want to fake it. I had to break it, I was stuck and couldn't shake it. I tried to keep it on the run, but for the life of me. All I got was double trouble, hurt, and misery. One day I heard him say, confession, sit there down and break. And he will come with no delay. If he will call, I said, okay. I told him I was sorry for the way I live. He said, fear not for every wrong I've done, he will forgive. Now no weapon formed against me, no the gates of hell. Can separate me from his love. I'm living swell. He comes highly recommended if you seek relief. All you need is a desire and your belief. No matter who you are or what you're going 